This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, onto the show. Welcome back for episode four of On the Fence Physio podcast. Uh, I am your host, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist, and now newly orthopedic certified specialist. I'm joined by my gorgeous co-host, Matthew Owens, um, also a newly minted OCS. Congratulations on passing the exam, Andy. Oh, your congratulations are most appreciated. You are a um, rock in my um, journey towards completing this wonderful challenge that we uh, had to wait for to hear about the results for so long, so long. Like I'd forgotten, I'd, I'd forgotten all my anxiety about waiting for test results until uh, like June 29th. June 29th. And then on June 30th, we uh, had to go to Twitter to find out how to access our scores. I did get an email. So feel about, for like, any of you specialty people yeah. that were sitting there waiting for that email, and you ended up searching, scouring all corners of the internet to figure out a way just to assess the score for a test you took on a computer months ago. Yeah, I think I did get my official email like at 4 a.m. on July yep, I got 1st. 4 a.m. July 1st. <laughs> well, it was, uh, I'm glad it's over. All right. Anything new in your life you'd like to share with our listeners? My life is just as boring as it's ever been. The kids have decided to stop sleeping. They tried this week to camp out on their floor instead of sleeping in their beds. That didn't go very well for anyone. Last night, we finally got them back in their beds. And our oldest seven-year-old comes downstairs at 10, uh, trying to tell us that the life-size golden retriever stuffed animal she has in her bed looks like a human and is scaring her and she doesn't think she can sleep anymore in her room because the human stuffed animal golden retriever is too creepy but other than that being sleep deprived nothing new i think that's just a baseline for most parents of an infant anyway so that's right how about you Andy? just signed up for that one Unwillingly? I don't know. Uh, how about you, Andy? What's new? Oh, uh, a lovely and thoughtful and insightful friend sent me my first podcast mic. So do I sound sexier? Does this sound good? I feel like I should be doing some kind of more radio voice, like, Hello, this is Duke Silver welcoming you to a live recording of my smooth jazz. <laughs> no? All right. I'll stick with normal. I mean, you can talk in that voice the whole uh, the whole time for our one listener. I don't even know if my wife listens to this podcast out of pity or not. She's a physical therapist assistant. 
I would I would hope that you could coerce her into it, but <laughs> hey, you know, I guess I know who wears the pants. Yeah, I have shorts on right now. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. Um, okay, so to get to it, <laughs> back on track. Uh, this past month, we were talking about prehab, which first of all, prehab is not something you should type into a PubMed search because it's not a real word. <laughs> Learn that thing. Uh, prehab sounds really cool, though. It's a really nice buzzword, which is maybe why it's become so popular of a topic amongst physical therapists is, ah, you got to get that patient in before surgery, get them strong, you know, get them smart, you know, like these are the things that are going to affect their outcomes. So we decided we were going to look into that, right? So Matt, what, what, did, what did you find in um, looking into what is the benefit? What is the value? What is the cost? What are the outcome changes that happen in preoperative physical therapy management? Well, when I, yeah, when I first went down the rabbit hole of the research articles, staying in the orthopedic lane, there have been a few pretty well-designed and extensive um, analysis of the effect of prehab on uh, total knee replacement and the uh, outcomes from patients. Whenever I was first looking, the first couple I stumbled across um, said basically there's not really any benefit to doing prehab in a total knee arthroscopy and that it's um, a waste of time and, and money. Um, one, one went so far as to say that uh, prehab is strongly not recommended um, as it has no benefit in the long-term outcome of total knee replacement. Uh, so as, the 2015 systematic review mm -hmm. um, that prehabilitation in any dose did not demonstrate benefits in objective and self-reported function at any of the post-operative time points. At any of the post-operative time points, correct. And their recommendation from that um, review was that prehab should be abandoned and not performed anymore for patients with uh, a total knee replacement. Uh, and I think you found one stating something now, similar about the hip, right? I wrote this article, right, because they uh, wanted to just tank our profession, right? <laughs> it was the chiropractors for sure. Uh, but then you found something similar regarding the hip, correct? Um, so I found a um, larger article that went over um, actually joint arthroplasties of the hip and knee um, that compiled uh, Medicare and Medicaid um, data. So they were looking at healthcare utilization after surgery. So comparing the prehab group to the um, non-receiving any preoperative physical therapy group found that they had a 29% reduction in healthcare spending um, compared to the control group. And that was even after they controlled for um, comorbidity, you know, pre, you know, pre um, study comorbidities. So trying to factor in the fact that, you know, some surgeons might not recommend you know, different status, functional statuses of patients to go to prehab, control for that, still 29% reduction in healthcare spending. So that's 
fewer people going to skilled nursing facilities, fewer people going to um, re- inpatient rehab facilities, fewer people utilizing home health. So really costing the um, healthcare system of Medicare and Medicaid less, which, you know, if one of the big benefits of having Medicare and Medicaid is that it's a uh, doesn't cost a whole lot to you, so you're probably more likely to use it than you would be to use your private insurance. So if you're using it less because, hey, you don't need it, like, that's pretty great. You know, like, if we showed a big reduction in, you know, people utilizing their private insurance, and you could always argue, like, well, hey, who wants to use their private insurance? It depends on what that copay is, right? But with um, showing reductions in, I'm going to whisper it, socialized medicine <laughs> which is int- uh, yeah interesting because the other article that actually, i feel like shows more yeah no i would agree with that um the article you posted i think previously from we couldn't get the full text um that's mm-hmm. the university hospital in maastricht or something it was originally written in dutch yeah, yeah, in dutch, yes, no positive effect of pre-operative exercise therapy in teaching in patients to be subject uh, to hip arthroplasty. So their conclusion was that preoperative exercise and instruction is not useful for patients who in the near future will be treated with a total hip arthroplasty for primary coxarthritis. Um, what do you think? That, well, see, we can't really dive into the methods because we can't get to the article. Any ideas as what the, the difference would have been? Alternative <laughs> explanations. Yeah. So it all depends on what you're what you're measuring too, because if what you're measuring is a change in functional status, if you're dealing with someone whose function is decreased due to you know severe hip OA, um, you might be able to make a difference with physical therapy. You might not, because I mean we all we all know these patients, these ones that have these very severe cases of OA that we're just like, okay, well the, this person's on the slippery slope down to getting a joint replacement, and that's what's actually going to fix them. So that's what's going to get them back to their pre-activity um, levels. So physical therapy might not actually be indicated because. Um, a lot of people say, oh, we're going we're gonna to train that glute medius up. We're going to build that up. But the glute medius is actually compressive of the hip joint. So if you have a real severe you know, flare-up of OA processes in there and you really strengthen, strengthen up that glute med, it's probably just going to hurt just as bad, if not more. So it's, it's, it might just be a thing of, you know, do you really change functional status or pain by doing prehab? And it depends on how far you follow that out. Um, my other thought would be, you know, like if you were looking at maybe some kind of more objective, like functional test, maybe like a, you know, six meter walk or a gate speed test, you know, some, or, you know, timed up and down the stairs, something else like that. I'd be interested to see what that would look like at the post-operative time points too, if you could make a difference with, um, prehab. I also think it's important just methodologically, if you're going to do a prehab study, not just to show change or difference in the post-op, but you need to show that you made a difference in your prehab protocol. So you need to have a pre-intervention and then a pre-surgery time point where you measure these outcomes. Show that your intervention made a difference between the intervention group and the control group. 
Um, and then in your post-operative, measure those time points too. And like any good research, try to follow them out as long as you can. As long as you can, yeah. Well, right. that's something then. You can see if these effects last for a while. Like as if, if, the po if the non prehab group catches up within like 10 days, 14 days, like does it matter? You know, like if they're only going to be behind, you know, two weeks. But if they don't catch up for a year, like if they don't have the same functional markers or the same objective markers as the prehab group at one year, well, one year is a, maybe that's worth it, you know, and yeah. have that conversation. Yeah, and that's something, so then looking at the research-wise, all right, okay, so in the orthopedic population, in my mind, it's like, okay, there's some mixed uh, evidence, uh, mixed opinions, right, and going back to what are you measuring, function, pain, cost, time, those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like to kind of broaden the scope in general, uh, and there's a interesting uh article um uh, done in the great state of michigan just above me uh that looked in um 2019 about a statewide prehabilitation program and the episodes how much payment was made so money cost cost money um from medicare beneficiaries so going back to that socialized medicine um, where the patient themselves wasn't maybe directly uh, responsible for cost. And just in case we have any really conservative followers, we just got to protect whisper, ourselves. Just whisper it. Yeah. I, I didn't say that. Uh, and their results uh, found that total episode payments were significantly lower for patients who had undergone um, the prehabilitation. Now that significantly lower was $31,000 on average versus $35,000 on average. So $4,000 per patient? $4,000 per patient. Those are round numbers. I'm not doing the exact math. It would be like 3,800 and something, but you could say $4,000 per patient. Uh, we're, in, we're in media. You round to make it sound better. Yeah. So I rounded down and I rounded up. So the 4,000 <laughs> is much better. Um, and those all those different factors, it looks like, uh, were in regards to shorter hospital stays. So one day less in the hospital, uh, which is a significant cost reduction and uh, lower post-acute care payments in skilled nursing facilities, lower home health uh, utilization. So lower utilization of medical care across the board from acute to early stage rehab uh, all the way through by going through uh, a prehab program. And one of the quotes I took a little picture of and posted uh, was from uh, Dr. Michael Inglesby. Give a shout out to Dr. Mike here. And he so was quoted in the article as saying that prehabilitation is good for patients, providers, and payers. We believe every patient should train for a major operation. It's like running a 5K race. You have to prepare. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I almost like that he chose um, 5K race. I do too. I thought it was a good distance. Yeah. It, it, brings, it, brings, it brings up another important point from some of the, some of the other articles that we had on here. 
um, the one about like the abdominal surgery, you know, having a pre, you know, like a fitness program is how they kind of described it, you know, basically increasing the patient's fitness, um, made the outcomes after abdominal surgery better. So 5k. Now, if you don't understand metric, that sounds like a really far distance. <laughs> it's one of those, sounds like a distance race, but really in competitive running, Okay, I might I might upset some people here. That's a sprint. Okay, um, yeah. And I don't want to I don't want to sound like conceited at all, but I will use about five k, maybe a little bit more, as a warm up run before I do any like weightlifting. So, the fact that he said it's like training for a five k, there are different people of different functional statuses, different fitness statuses as well. If your fitness status is such that running a 5k would be extremely difficult, if not impossible for you, then maybe he's saying like, yeah, you need to train for this, you know, like, and maybe, you know, we're, we're seeing that if you're already pre-morbidly in good health, in good physical status, maybe you don't need this prehab because if you're already, if you already have that baseline fitness, baseline strength, what additional benefit is prehab going to bring? Because is prehab going to train you harder than you are, have already trained yourself? So if running a 5k is already easy for you, then maybe prehab isn't for you because you're already, you've already done it. You've done it. Yeah. And I think we can go as far as to say with surgery and specifically joint replacement surgery, there's patients that we see who have a difficult time just going up two steps in their house and walking Mm -hmm. across the kitchen. And that's not from even necessarily a pure strength, but cardiovascularly, right? Right. So to me, that makes sense. If that's your 5k getting across the living room, all right, maybe let's do some prehabilitation, uh, overall health, uh, health work. And I thought that was one of the good things too, from the, uh, Michigan study is part of their prehabilitation program was, uh, smoking cessation programs, other education as well. So I should make sure I say that it wasn't just physical fitness, but a health focused education, uh, comprehensive plan in general, uh, which I think could be important. Um, absolutely. Um, I do believe that the education, so this is, um, me speaking anecdotally, but the education preoperatively is huge for me. If I can get a hold of a patient for that preoperative visit and actually talk to them about what post-op is going to look like. In my experience, a lot of surgeons haven't, you know, like really been as negative, I feel like, as they should be. I I feel like a lot of patients come to me, or maybe, hey, I can put this on patients too. Maybe patients aren't hearing what the surgeons are saying because a lot of my, I've, I've had some patients, especially like Achilles, you know, tendon repairs, um, that think that they're going to be back to their baseline of like, you know, playing volleyball really quickly, you know, and that just, I have to really take a step back 
And I feel like I'm being the bearer of bad news. And I'm like, hey, you know, there's a lot of, you know, like research out there that says that you might not even be able to do a single leg heel raise until like nine months post. <laughs> so like that's a long, much longer time frame than they've been given. And if I can set that expectation early, then I'm not battling it in the post-op care. Because in the post-op care, if you are bringing that information to them, a patient might think, oh, you're just saying that because I'm not progressing as fast as you know I should be. But if you tell them that preoperatively, then they're like, okay, that's that's the bar. That's the, you know, that's the anchoring effect. That's where I think normal is. And if I think normal's there, then I'm not gonna feel bad if I'm still walking in a boot at six weeks post, at eight weeks post. Yeah, you make a really good point with that. And it's something I hear every day with a variety of surgeries is oh, they didn't tell me it was going to be like this. Or you have that patient who keeps needing reassurance. Like, are you sure I'm doing okay? Are you sure this pain is normal? Like, I had my knee replaced two days ago. Why is it all black and blue? Why is my foot black and blue? They didn't do surgery on my foot. Oh, my surgeon didn't tell me that. So, no, I've heard multiple times, oh, I feel like my surgeon kind of oversold it a little bit. You know, like it was going to be really easy. Uh, Now, on the other side of that, the surgeons I work most closely with, the type of surgery that I don't feel like that happens is uh, in ACL reconstruction. They're pretty conservative and can downplay or um, try to set some reasonable expectations on the athlete on their time to return to sport, how long it's going to take expectations. Some things that I feel like, Oh, maybe those are a little bit too pessimistic. What do you, I think you put some things about, uh, ACL reconstruction. Well, of of course we had to talk about ACL reconstruction. This is the orthopedic physical therapy podcast. Uh, every research dollar, every, for every research dollar that goes to orthopedic physical therapy, uh, at least 50 cents goes to ACL rehab, right? That's right. And I think in your example, it was the opposite, right? You had a middle-aged attorney that was told she would be back to skiing in six months. Right. Yeah, that was a... Wow, you have a memory remembering that patient. Um, yeah, so I had that patient, and that patient was already um, a very high-strung individual being a... Um, not that all attorneys are, but this was a very type A personality, um, very much competitive person, wanted to be on the front edge of their recovery. So the complications that come with, you know, like having a hamstring graft, being middle-aged, you know, not having great previous, you know, like fitness status, putting on a little bit of weight, you know, from injury to post-op care, you know, causing the patient to struggle a bit. I was pretty grateful that I had been able to see that patient preoperatively because I was able to kind of reset some of those goals and say like, hey, we should be shooting more for like nine months to a year. Um, But hey, there's some other other checkpoints along the way when we get you back running. You know, that's a big deal. When we get you back weightlifting, that's a big deal. Like set these other bars up for your patient too. So if you're moving one hurdle like really far away, uh, my recommendation is try to give them some other hurdles um, that are a little bit closer, that are easier to see. 
Um, I think that a lot of post-op patients respond pretty well to that. Um, they want to know that, you know, there are many, there are many myths out there that it's going to be, you know, I'm on crutches. I'm on, I'm, you know, non, I'm partial weight bearing, but all of a sudden one day I'm back to everything. Um, setting up that spectrum of recovery with your patients, I think is very important to say like, Hey, at some point we're going to hit this criterion. We're going to be at this point. We can do this activity. Great. And then a couple more weeks go by. Oh, we've hit this criterion. We can do this new activity and try to make it seem like it's progression for your patients. And they can understand, they can understand that they're getting pieces of their, um, life functional status, you know, personal identity back as they go. Um, I would like to shift the conversation a little bit towards um, an issue that's a little bit more ethically and morally gray, right? Because we're here to tackle the gray subject. It seems like prehab as being beneficial or not isn't really all that gray. It seems like for the most part, you know, there are a couple studies that say that it doesn't provide a whole lot of extra benefit. There's definitely no studies out there that I saw that said it hurt anybody. Right. You know, that prehab caused more complications. Didn't find anything like that. And then we found a good amount of research that said, yeah, it's it's good for functional status, good for pain management, good for these other things. Great. Um, but we live in America. America has commercialized America. medicine. <laughs> we need to talk about the money. So we've talked about how in some cases it had, you know, reduced, you know, costs, you know, cost effectiveness, which is great. So um, we live in a fee for service model. So for any of you new P, you know, PT students or new PTs out there that don't really understand that yet is we are not reimbursed for our services based on how valuable they are to the patient. We are reimbursed by how much we do for the patient. So you could do, you know, two units of something that is very valuable and very helpful for the patient and maybe get reimbursed less than someone who does four units of some, you know, interventions that maybe aren't as valuable that don't benefit the patient as much because we are in a fee for service model. So the more services you provide, the more fees you collect. That doesn't sound very, uh, uplifting <laughs> if you're entering the profession. And I know that a lot of you student P PTs right now are really stressed to enter our profession right now in the pandemic setting and the job market that's currently available. But are there any alternatives to cost or fee for service models, Matthew, or is there any other way that we could possibly reimburse physical therapists for what they do? So I've heard something like value-based reimbursement, I think uh, is what it's called. Yeah, so the idea being instead of just being paid for doing a bunch of stuff, you could do less things and be paid more for those things because they provide a greater va a value to the patient than a bunch of random stuff. Now this argument is... I think very nuanced. There's a lot of different factors. There's a lot of unknowable uh, outcomes within this. It's kind of like putting uh, an orthotic in your shoe. You think you're doing something at the arch and next thing you know, the hip's doing something crazy. Or you thought you were supporting the arch and instead now it's moving even more. I don't know. That's what I, how I feel about 
the value-based versus um, fee-for-service model. I think there should be something more. There's something. There's something. It's got to be better than fee-for-service uh, when we're looking at why do we do what we do. If your goal on your metrics is you've got to get five units with this commercial payer, and oh, I've done all the stuff they need, but I need to throw in a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, to hit my unit numbers, I feel like that is not providing quality care. So within a, a um, value-based reimbursement model, the studies that we've talked about with overall um, cost reduction could be important to justify why um, somebody besides the patient should be paying for that. And... Uh, the difficult part would be from a, a functional perspective because it's not just about or shouldn't be just about money in our care of patients, but it should be about getting them back to their um, livelihoods, what they want to achieve and their goals. Sure, but we're, ta we're talking about reimbursement models there. So this is, it is all about money and reimbursement is you're trying, it's you're trying to figure out how do you pay physical therapists for what they do. So it's okay to talk. It, I think there are a lot of PTs out there, a lot of healthcare providers out there in general that think talking about money is dirty, right? No, I'm here for the patient. No, I'm all the patient. You can just pay me in food. You know, like, <laughs> like I don't need to. Yes, you do need to make money. We all had to go to school for a long time. Unless you had you know, rich parents with a, you know, trust fund, like you had to take out some loans probably for school right. or work some, you know, dead end job for a while to save up enough money to go to school. Like, okay, we need to talk about it. Um, we need to understand that physical therapists need to be paid for what they do. Physicians need to be paid for what they do. All healthcare providers need to be paid for what they do. But how do we determine how they get that money? Should it be, you know, based on, hey, if you if you just spend a whole lot of time with the patient, does that mean that you should get paid more? Maybe, you know, that's kind of what the model we're looking at now. But what you're talking about in a value based service is, OK, if you make a lot of change in that patient, you should be paid more. So if um, what, whether your outcome be a patient reported outcome scale, whether it be some other objective tests of a patient like it could be something as simple as, ah, you know, like with hip replacements, six meter walk distance, you know, like the more change you make in their six meter, you know, six minute walk time that you get paid more based on that. Like that would be interesting to see what results would happen. I'd see, you'd see a lot of patients like really pushing their, <laughs> well, <laughs> pushing their distances because their PT's chasing them with something like run farther, go farther. Go I got to get, get, get my whip more. out. I got, I got a, I got a payment. <laughs> Mortgage is coming up. Um, so that could cause its own fair share of problems. Oh, yeah, so I'm not saying sure. that value-based is the answer. Okay. Because you could potentially see um, some really bad things happen because of that. But I think that we need to find, we need to find a better way. Yeah, a way to incentivize and this is, quality yeah. care over quantity of care. Yes, because this is going to be, this is definitely going to be a topic of another one of our discussions is what do you do when you feel like you've done everything that's good for the patient, 
but you have a supervisor, you have a manager that's saying like, hey, you're not billing enough units per visit. I, I say this from personal experience, guys. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> I have never, I have never, I've been, I don't know I've only been practicing for three years, but I have not had one performance meeting where I've had a supervisor say, wow, you're billing so many units. This is fantastic. Everything's good. In fact, you don't need to work this hard. You could bill fewer units. Like never have I heard a supervisor tell me to bill fewer units. They're always asking for more. And I feel like I'm doing everything I need for my patient. I don't ever feel like I'm shafting any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so this will definitely be a future conversation. So I'll put a pin in this one. Yeah, put a pin in that because it's say, that's what we, that can, we, need, we need. We need to talk about that. We can talk um, about that for a long, long time. I have many yes, opinions about that. Many, many things. So maybe, yeah, we'll, we'll we will save that one. So listeners, be excited for that one coming soon. Any uh, final summative thoughts about the benefit of prehabilitation, preoperative physical therapy? I think to bring it uh, all home, the idea that surgery is something that's taxing on the body and that there might be a baseline physical uh, function, fitness, uh, mentality as well that could benefit a patient and help their recovery is important and I I think that uh, making sure you're setting reasonable expectations with your patients even if you don't have prehabilitation in those first couple visits is really important so that you can uh, find those goals and milestones along the way that can help the patient feel like they're successful uh, is really important. Yeah, um, I think that it's important that we're doing this kind of research, too, in the cost-effective model. Um, I think going forward, if we show that this is a cost-effective thing, insurance companies will then start reimbursing it for everyone. Because as of now, as things stand, not a lot of private insurance companies are going to reimburse for preoperative physical therapy. So if you don't have um, insurance that's reimbursing for it, who are the people that are going to get preoperative care? Well, the people who have the money to afford it. And if we're letting, you know, the wealthier people, not disparaging on them, um, get better health outcomes from their surgeries, then that's just going to continue to increase that health disparity gap that we see in the U.S. So if we can make this available to everybody by doing good research and showing that, hey, this is cost effective, this benefits the patient, their outcomes, their pain, it's good for everybody, then we can get everybody on board saying, hey, prehab is going to be good for these conditions, everybody should get it, we be, it becomes more of a regular thing, everybody gets it, everybody's on a little bit more even playing field. So I do think um, these directions that we can go with the research are very important. I think we need to continue to look at them, identify what types of prehab in what conditions, because it's not black and white. Of course, we're on the fence about it. That's right. So that's what I got. Um, coming up next. So um, for our conversation starting on July 15th, what do we got, Matthew? So our next 
month's uh, discussion is going to be around residency and specialty. Is it worth it? So Andy and I have just been through a year of residency, took a big test, and now we get to start thinking about what's next. But before we think about what's next, we have to think about, all right, what, what I just did, was that, was that worth it? Is that going to make us dated or biased at all? I hope so. I think it'll, it'll give us a, uh, some insight, and especially to all the new grads, or I would, you know, that's uh, the general you know, feeling now. I know when we were coming out of school that, okay, residency is important. It's the next phase. Specialty is important. Uh, and when we finish it, it's like, all right, is it really? Okay. Well, we're uh, three years post. Uh, we graduated with 36 people in our physical therapy class. How many people have completed um, residency and specialist certification? I know of four that have completed residency. And that, is, that is the correct number. And then we including have- the two of us. Yeah, including two of us. And then <laughs> there is another one who just did the specialty certification without residency uh, this year. So five- Five out of the, what, 36? No, that's four and a half. <laughs> residency training counts, too. We're, we're going to discuss both of those. Residency training and um, specialist certification. Because yeah, I think good. that they are both um, questions that a lot of young physical therapists and physical therapy students have. Is, should I do both? Should I do one? If I was going to do one, which one would I do first? You know, these are good questions. We will try to see if we can find some good answers out there for you yeah. next month. And okay. please join in on Twitter at OTF Physio um, to join the discussion thread. We'd like to hear other people's opinions um, because Matt and I's opinions tend to be uh, the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think too with the residency, maybe we can get our two classmates who did in-person residencies ah. and their opinion uh, on it versus – Ours where we both did the, I don't know what you want to call it, remote or not in person. I don't know the exact term. but We could have our first uh, verbal guest on the show because we've had your infant son and um, my dog has been pacing around. <laughs> Neither of them have chosen to speak during our podcast. Yeah, so I'm excited, excited for next month's discussion. Me too. All right, Matt, have a good time. We'll see you next time. All right, see you, Andy.